This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frasier Productions. AM ABC. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. I'm Renee Frazier, the CEO and founder of Frazier Communications, the leading woman-owned advertising and communications firm in Southern California. We specialize in changing behaviors to grow brands and positively impact society in both the private and the public sector. My show, The Deciders, is an opportunity to feature leaders in their fields and change agents in their communities. On The Deciders, we ask people to share their stories, their insights, and their tips on issues that will affect business and affect our society, but particularly the business side of the equation. Today, I'm going to be talking about aging and memory loss. Uh, Many, many colleagues have asked me about this, and we know that there's a very large number of people aging in the United States. Sometimes it's called the gray tsunami. So there are many, many people who are dealing with the aging factors, and we're going to be covering covering these in a series on the radio show, The Deciders. Did you know the idea that as we age, we lose memory and mental capacity is, is really a common misconception. My guest today says serious mental decline is not necessarily a normal part of the aging process, and one-third of all dementia is preventable. The guest today is Dr. Mark Milstein, and Mark Milstein specializes in examining the scientific research on human health. Dr. Milstein explains how new scientific breakthroughs can improve our lives. He has a PhD in biological chemistry, a bachelor in in, uh, molecular, cellular, and developmental biology, and he conducts research. His work is published in scientific journals. Uh, He's a frequent speaker on a wide variety of topics. We're going to be talking to him about new research that says we can actually lower your risk for dementia. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mark, let's uh, talk about uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, I know that uh, there's an estimated 47 million people who have dementia worldwide. And then there's also a large number of people who suffer from Alzheimer's. What is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? That's a common confused situation because Mm -hmm. those terms were used interchangeably for a long time. Uh, But we now clarify that dementia is just symptoms. So memory loss, having trouble making a decision, personality changes. And Alzheimer's is one specific disease that causes the symptoms of dementia. So there's many causes of dementia. There's over 200 known causes, but Alzheimer's is the most common. And it's a specific disease that causes the symptoms of dementia, that memory loss. Got it. Well, I I know that memory loss also occurs as we age and people forget where their keys are. They can't pull up a word. Uh, To what extent is this normal as a part of aging? Because you said it's not necessarily an aging condition, but I have to say it's very frequent for those of us who are over 50 or over 60. Right. So as we get uh, a little bit older, certain parts of memory become more challenging. It can be harder to multitask. Uh, We're so distracted in our modern world, going from our phones back to our computers, back to our phones. And what we see is a lot of those memory issues are very much rooted in being so distracted. And if people slow down a little bit, they often find that they do remember things better and they're able to recall if they slow down a little bit. What we're concerned about when it comes to dementia is when it's getting to the point where it's impacting day-to-day life. It's hard to get through the day forgetting important appointments, how to get home, what a certain device is used for that somebody has used all the time. Those are much more serious 
aspects of memory loss as opposed to the things that are much more common and, and slowing down often helps th- those things. Well, I know that there are, you know, there are many forms of dementia, right? As many as 200 mm-hmm. known causes also of dementia. Um, a lot of them are rare. Uh, I think in, I read in your materials that 20% of dementia is quickly treatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And so part of what it's important to uh, get out the information that we want to move away from this idea that there's nothing we can do. Somebody's showing some memory problems. Oh, why, why even look further? That's just part of aging. We want to move away from that because, A, there are things we can do. And in about 20% of the cases, there's specific things we can do to really treat that memory loss. So these are things like vitamin deficiencies, hormone imbalances, side effects to medications. It would be tragic if somebody lived with dementia or memory loss and we could treat it. So always we want to dig deeper and figure out what the root cause is. That suggests you should go to the doctor. Absolutely. Right. And there could be, as you said, a vitamin deficiency, right? Right. So it may even be treatable. It's good to know one out of five cases can be treated. All right, well, let's dig deeper into uh, uh, Alzheimer's and then what people can do to slow it down or prevent it in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about the science behind Alzheimer's and what we, what we know is causing it. So it's caused by many factors. It's not just one thing. The, the science is that our brain makes trash and waste. It's just part of living day to day. Our brain makes garbage. Mm-hmm. It's part of just being alive. And a certain type of garbage that clumps together and forms things called plaques and tangles in the brain right. is the hallmark of what Alzheimer's is. And so it's a certain type of trash that builds up. And over time, that trash doesn't allow the healthy brain cells to function. And that can have that negative impact on memory. So. Uh, In the past, we've been really focused in terms of treatments on trying to get rid of that garbage. It makes sense. Um, The treatments haven't been as successful as we would have hoped, and that's because there's more to it than just the garbage. It's not just one cause. It's not just the plaques. It's not just the tangles. We now know that it's multiple factors, and if we address these multiple factors, that's where we're seeing hope to lower risk, and that's where there's some hope on the horizon for some new treatments. Well, we'll talk about the uh, the factors in just a moment, but I do want to make a note that on a previous show, we talked with a doctor about research that's being done. Mm-hmm. And in his research and the products they're working on, they've identified biomarkers mm-hmm. that are predictors of, uh, in his case, in his work, Parkinson's as well as Alzheimer's. And the good news was that those are in clinical trials measures of those indicators and the the uh, recommendation he has is that as you know alzheimer's and parkinson's often present in the form that we know about them when people are in their 60s 70s and 80s and we do have medications that can diminish the effect but at that point in time they're not as effective his argument was start earlier if we could test people in their 30s and identify that they have the biomarkers they'll engage in the behaviors that you and i are going to talk about mm-hmm. as tips but that also if they took this medication it could delay the onset of very serious signs of alzheimer's uh until 90 or 100 years old so uh we're looking forward to that we we should be able to see some evidence of this in 21 or 22 and at the end of the show i'll mention the name of the individual in the show so uh, our listeners can tune into that. But let's go, you're nodding your head, so you know about this biomarker research. Yeah, that's a very key part of the puzzle, which is exactly what you said, is that if we can identify early, uh, if we can treat early and have these interventions with lifestyle, that's where we're hoping to see a major shift in, in positive results. Let's talk about lifestyle and uh, and the factors. I, I wanted to start with sleep because I thought that was interesting in reading your material. Tell me about how important that is. 
Well, sleep, we now know, is not just rest. It's it's much more is going on. And so when it relates to things like dementia and Alzheimer's, at a fundamental level, every night when we go to sleep, our brain squeezes out garbage, trash, plaques, tangles, washes it away. So fluid comes up from the spinal cord and we wash garbage out of our brain every night. It sounds like a horror movie, <laughs> but it's actually really happening. And it's really one of our most exciting breakthroughs in brain science. It's a cleanse. It's a so cleanse. Your brain, yeah. Yeah, your brain is being cleansed, which means you need a certain amount of sleep. Absolutely. So it happens in each cycle of sleep. So what we want to have happen is these multiple sleep cycles. So we have multiple wash and rinse cycles Mm -hmm. throughout the night. And so this idea is that not that people should wake up in the middle of the night and panic that they're not getting their brainwash, but that realize if you do wake up, it's actually quite normal. You know, take a few deep breaths relax, let yourself know that you need enough couple more rinses and washes. And we want to clean that trash out. So at a fundamental level, sleep is critically important for washing the brain and washing out that garbage. Now, what's the relationship between sleep apnea? I know that you also yeah. are concerned about that. What does that do and how does it affect the brain? Uh, so sleep apnea is one of our biggest risk factors for dementia, for memory loss. And the reason those are tied together is that in sleep apnea, individuals wake up hundreds, if not thousands of times during the night due to some breathing issues. And if they're getting this constant disruption in their sleep, then they don't allow that wash process to take place thoroughly. And so we see how critically important it is to get a good night's sleep, to identify sleep apnea. People with untreated sleep apnea on average lose their memory prematurely. Mm. But if you treat the sleep apnea, that premature memory loss goes away in most cases. So it, it shows us that at the top of the list, we need to be identifying sleep apnea and treating it. Excellent. And getting seven to eight hours of sleep. Uh, for most people, yeah, it's a, it's individualized, but that's a nice that's for most people. That's a nice target. OK. Yeah. Now, I, I often hear do crossword puzzles, you know, you exercise your brain. Is it that or is it more about learning new things? Because I know the brain is also very plastic. Yeah, the brain is constantly remodeling. It, it's uh, making new connections. And there's nothing wrong with crossword puzzles or with, um, you know, brain games, things like that. But where we see a lot of evidence is where people learn things out of their field of expertise. So if you're not a musician, learn a musical instrument, learn a new language. I think that's it. You yeah. push yourself into a domain. I have a couple of friends who are learning the piano. Yeah, exactly. You know, at 65. Well, that's pretty great. Yeah. And they're loving it. Uh, and it's it's also, uh, they're good at something else. You know, it's it's fun to now be, go back and be a novice. It's right, something right. and learn something fresh and be humbled by it, but also be thrilled by the fact that you can learn it. So it, it's pushing yourself like a new language, like you said, maybe even tennis or an activity. Yes. Sports are, are excellent. Um, embrace that it's hard. Embrace that it's challenging. Mm-hmm. And, and know that what you're doing is exercising those brain cells that are making new connections. And that's very different than things we're already good at. There's nothing wrong with practicing things that we're good at. But there's something about that outside of our comfort zone that's very good for the brain. Okay. Good piece of advice. So sleep, learning new things outside of our comfort zone. What about hearing loss? How does that relate? Um, so that one, you know, oftentimes sounds surprising, but studies are showing that if the hearing loss is not treated, there's an increased risk of memory loss. And hmm. what we believe is happening there is that when we're not hearing, we're often not learning. And it's it's important to keep learning and it's important to stay engaged. So if someone's having hearing issues, the studies seem to suggest that if they just have a hearing aid, that the memory issues aren't as, as significant. Um, but it, it highlights this issue of 
staying engaged, not being isolated, being yeah. social. Yeah. Um, studies are showing people who go to dinner parties, people who stay engaged in social activities. These are things, again, we want to embrace. As we get older, we don't want to let these things slide. They keep us and our brain young. It's really good practical advice, uh, Dr. Milstein, because that's the idea of uh, when you don't hear well or you, you know, don't like loud restaurants so you don't go out and you isolate yourself. You know, there's less stimulation, less brain stimulation, less usage of the brain. So you're really saying, you know, hearing loss is just a corollary of not being actively engaged. So I'm sh- sensing don't isolate yourself. Stay very socially engaged is another one of these pieces of advice. Yeah, that's on the, the list of the important things. And thankfully, these are fun things. They're, they're, right. they're things that are that are fun to do and, and, and things that we want to be doing. What about exercise? Uh, exercise is about as close as we have to a magic bullet ah, uh, in terms okay. of in terms of good things for the brain. It helps us sleep. It helps blood flow to the brain, which is important, helps can can help balance the immune system. And so uh, if we if there's one thing to really adopt, it's exercise. And it is about 20 minutes a day of what we would call moderate exercise. One way to think of that is you could talk through the workout, but you couldn't sing through it. Um, that's mm-hmm. a good goal. Mm-hmm. That's that's the amount that seems to be most beneficial for the brain. But any amount of exercise is great. But um, making sure that we're getting some some active movement. Is I really like important. that. You know, I, I'm over 60 and uh, I started uh, doing the treadmill every day for 25 minutes and whether or, or I do a yoga class for an hour and a half. So I think I'm helping my brain. Yeah, definitely. you know, I, it also, as you know, it uh, endorphins, right? You feel better. You feel happier. You feel engaged. Uh, it's annoying to have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and go out in the cold and walk to the treadmill or go to the gym. But right. it's worth it isn't it? Yeah. Exercise pretty much releases into the bloodstream, which makes its way to the brain, a whole list of what we call these cytokines. And they're just chemicals that keep us youthful. They help balance and reduce inflammation. They help with all mood. So it's, it's really as close as we have to mimicking medication. Wow. I didn't yeah. realize that. Now, cytokines, C-Y-T? C-Y-O- uh, T-I-K-I-N-E-S. Uh, got yeah. it. Okay. Very interesting. So they're released and they make you feel young. They make you feel better about yourself. Yeah, there's just, there's there's many of them and they can be, so you can have cytokines that are actually cause inflammation and you have cytokines that can actually calm down inflammation. And what exercise does when, is, does when it's done moderately is it releases these chemicals that essentially tell our body that we are using it and we need to keep it keep it working properly. It's like a car. You want to keep driving it. You, keep don't, want driving it, it. you don't want to let it sit, sit in the garage. Sit still, right? Yeah. I, I, think, I think there's also a sense of reinforcement. You know, I'm a psychologist by training. So when you feel good, you get immediate reward. There's, I'm going to do it again, yeah. right? right? Yeah. And, yeah, I think and it's, it's the body telling you, right, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, it doesn't take much. You know, 10 minutes, people start feeling significantly better. Well, and walking is a big uh, exercise alternative, right, especially for older people, right? It doesn't necessarily, like you said, moderate exercise. It doesn't mean you have to run a triathlon or a... It's not the no pain, no gain. It's the... Uh, there's a study that came out 30 minutes of walking a day didn't have to all be done at the same time, lowered the risk of memory loss. So it's great. Just just getting that walk in, you know, a couple times a day makes can make a big difference. Oh, you know, I also measure my steps. That's a part of that. And I try to do 10,000 steps mm-hmm. a day and I think it's about five miles and it probably adds up to 45 minutes to an hour of walking. And uh, sometimes I know folks who actually walk around their apartment or their <laughs> in the evening or around the, the television <laughs> just to get the steps in, <laughs> right? right? right. Uh, but that's all right. That's commitment. I yeah, think you yeah. do whatever it takes, yeah. right? And I, I love these recommendations. So tell us another one. I think we're up to four or five on the um, all the tips that you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, another big one is what we're eating. Uh-huh. And so 
This idea of brain food, we now have quite a bit of evidence that that's a very real thing scientifically. And so what's happening in our gut it has a, a direct relationship to our brain. And really the take-home messages and studies even came out about a week ago that further showed evidence for this is that we just want to make sure that we're eating things like fresh foods, vegetables, whole grains. If it fits, diet is individualized, but finding some combination of fruits and vegetables, uh, things that aren't overly processed. Mm -hmm. I always like to talk about the Twinkie in Chicago and the museum that's unwrapped from 10 years ago. That's what we're worried about. All those things that have the Is that Twinkie went still in shape, even though... Oh, yeah. Was... Look, you could eat it. It looks pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd want to, but it looks pretty good. And yeah. and th that those additives and preservatives that make food never spoil wow. are the things that can cause an inflammatory or inflammation in the gut. Mm -hmm. that can actually make its way to the brain and damage the brain. And so these whole natural foods really have an impact on calming down inflammation and sending beneficial cytokines. To I brain. like that. Yeah. I like that. You know, in that other interview that I mentioned, the gentleman mentioned there is a relationship between the gut mm. and Alzheimer's as well. was yeah. talking about that. Uh, I know that there are, when you look at um, <clears throat> the food that we eat, is there an amount you can say? Have studies shown how much it will lower uh, your Alzheimer's risk if you eat the way you're suggesting? Yeah, so there was a study done uh, where they looked at something called the MIND diet. That's a Mediterranean diet mixed with a DASH heart healthy diet. Mm. They followed people for several years. And what they found is if people moderately followed the diet, they lowered their risk of Alzheimer's by, by about 35%. If they strictly followed this diet, uh, they lowered their risk by about 53%. And even about a week ago, we had more studies from that group. And they found that they looked at flavanols, which are basically in fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And they followed uh, people in their 80s for six years. And they found if they ate a diet rich in these, you know, fruits, vegetables, things like that, they lowered their risk of things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's it's pretty powerful information that we're learning that food does have an impact. It's uh, part of the puzzle. Absolutely. And, you know, I, uh, people have said to me, well, what are these things? And I said, you're going to be surprised. Uh, they're basic things and they're not hard to do and they're not expensive to do. Right. In many cases, they're just lifestyle changes, like right. you said. So an apple a day makes a lot of right, sense right, yeah. broccoli along with it broccoli and spinach. right right yeah. spinach exactly leafy greens so that's great now when you um when you eat like that you're also dealing with um inflammation right mm -hmm. because that's another factor i think yeah. that can you talk a little bit about inflammation and what what people should do to reduce that and what role it plays with dementia and or with alzheimer's in this yeah. case um what we're learning is is that um what happens is, is that trash that's in the brain, we have a human cell, it's called a microglia. And imagine a little fish swimming around in your brain, eating up the trash mm -hmm. that keeps your brain clean and young and healthy. That cell, that microglia can make a mistake and start attacking healthy brain tissue. Oh. And that's where we see people starting to lose their memory. Oh. And so that human cell is an immune cell and inflammation elsewhere in the body can confuse that cell into attacking the brain uh -huh. instead of the trash. And that's where food can send the right signals to that, that immune cell, keeping inflammation low, treating injuries. If someone has an autoimmune condition, effectively treat it. So what's happening in the, from the neck down impacts what's happening in the brain. The good news is we have effective treatments and lifestyle interventions for a lot of inflammatory conditions and autoimmune conditions. We've had big breakthroughs in the last few years. Talk to your physician, take advantage of them. Lifestyle changes, sometimes medication is warranted. But the good news is that we have made some major strides there. That's wonderful to hear. Now, what about diabetes? Because we know how common that is. Does that increase your risk for Alzheimer's? Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, uh, diabetes and Alzheimer's are linked in the body. Oh. And so we see it in multiple ways. One is that 
untreated diabetes is pretty much our single greatest risk factor for developing Alzheimer's. Oh my goodness, say that one more time. So untreated diabetes, beside, the only greater risk factor is age. Besides uh -huh. age, diabetes is the single greatest risk factor for developing Alzheimer's if the diabetes is not treated. If the diabetes is effectively treated, we have some evidence that people's risk goes all the way back down to zero. <laughs> I mean, not in the general population, I should say. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they're even protected. Wow. So the take home message is 50% of our population either has prediabetes or diabetes. This is fueling our Alzheimer's epidemic, the issues. Ah. So the, the good hopeful news is, is that if we can identify and treat diabetes, not only is it important to be treating diabetes, it's protecting people's brains to treat diabetes. That's really smart. I, I know, you know, we do a lot of um, public health messaging and we've learned about diabetes and also trying to fight obesity, particularly in children, so that they don't uh, get diabetes early in their lives and, and prevent that, uh, knowing that it's a precursor to other conditions and other health conditions, like you're saying, with Alzheimer's. What about stress? You know, if, uh, all of us <clears throat> have stress in our lives and those of us who are entrepreneurs sometimes feel like we have an even more stress on our shoulders. Does that affect the brain and can that affect Alzheimer's as well? Yeah, so stress uh, is interestingly in, interesting in that uh, a bit of stress, a burst of stress, uh, things that we're looking forward to, challenges we have to tackle, that's all good for the brain. Keep thinking of the brain like a car. You mm -hmm. have to drive it. Don't leave it in the garage. But at the same time, we don't want to overdrive it. So we want to stay engaged. We want to be active. We want to have challenges. Stress is not bad for the brain. It actually makes uh, the brain young to have some stress. So we want to embrace some stress. The problem is, is when the stress is overwhelming. We can't take a break from it. It's chronic. It never ends. It's traumatic. And even in our day-to-day -day life, we have so much stress just living in this modern world. But the good news is, is that things like mindfulness, meditation, going out in nature, hanging out with friends, all these things are really active ways to take breaks mm -hmm. from chronic stress. They've mm -hmm. been shown to be effective so that the stress is a nice burst, mm -hmm. but it's not an all-day problem. When that's That's where we're concerned with the brain is that it's... It's just the never-ending stress is what we're concerned about. I like that a lot. The idea that you have stress, it's almost like it's exercising your brain mm -hmm. when you're stressful. But you deal with an issue, you may learn something new, look for a solution. But then you take time to have downtime. And like you're saying, mindfulness, meaning breathing exercises, meditation, or even allowing yourself. One of the things I love is when you, I go on the ocean a lot and walk on the beach, you feel a part of something else bigger than you. you yeah. know, And it takes your mind away from... You're suddenly in part of something as opposed to inside yourself. And I think that's important for people. That's essentially a lot of meditation, trying to zone in and connect with a larger force. So you're saying it's good for the brain to have those episodes. And any prescription on how often to do that kind of thing? Or um, The studies were done. They did it for about six to eight weeks, about 20 minutes a day. But some people need less and some people need more. And a nice thing is just to think about throughout the day, Every few hours, maybe out every hour or so, taking a moment and checking in and saying, you know what, stress is building up. I need to take a, a quick break. That's actually a good idea. You know, um, I think, you know, we all have been taught that we shouldn't sit too long. Right. And the idea is get up and get away from your computer and walk around. But the idea of taking a stress break mm -hmm. and uh, taking a deep breaths and you know, like you said, checking in with yourself and yeah. taking letting your mind go away from the stress. I know that, too, from a problem solving point of view. 
when I allow myself to stop thinking about something I'm stuck on, the solution often emerges, right? Right, right exactly. Yeah. yeah, and there's research on that as well, that the brain, you're allowing a thinking to go on at a different level, at a lower level, and a, a new solution, just like people get, you know, eureka ideas in the shower, right? right? right. Uh, allowing your brain to relax, but doing that to, deliberately to try to pace the stress, really smart advice. I appreciate that. What if, what about depression? Uh, and I know that can be related to isolation as well. Is there a relationship between depression and Alzheimer's? Uh, yeah, so untreated depression is also a risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's. It increases the risk. Uh, depression is a, in many cases, can be a chronic state of stress. That chronic stress, that hormone, that cortisol can shrink the brain cells, yes. make it difficult to learn new things, and it can be damaging to the brain. So we want to be identifying and treating depression on its own due to its seriousness, but also because of its long-term ramifications with Alzheimer's and dementia. Well, goodness, we've covered, I think, the 10 risk factors and the, and the tips for reducing your risk at Al of, of Alzheimer's. Thank you so much, Dr. Milstein. You know, on the show, the deciders always like to ask people about difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. Could you share with us in the last couple of minutes we have a tough decision you had to make and how you made it? I'll, I'm actually in the middle of a tough decision, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Okay. And that is that um, I have an opportunity I've been looking forward to to go to Asia. Uh, and do some speaking there. And I'm trying to get the facts and trying to weigh the, the risk factors of going and where I need to go. And it's really challenging because on one hand, um, trying to get the accurate information of what are, what is exactly the risk. And on the other hand, it's, it's scary what's happening there for all the, the people and, and trying to, trying to mitigate. And I think that what I'm doing now is taking my time and trying to get the facts and as it gets closer, see how the situation unfolds and hoping for, for the best for everybody there and then hoping that it'll, there'll be a, a, a good solution. Good to this. solution yeah. for you as well. It'd yeah. be fascinating. I know they'd benefit from your teaching over there, and, and uh, but it's, it's difficult. So you're gathering a lot of information until your gut probably tells you I've got enough information. I now have to make a decision. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good way to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add to this discussion, I did interview Dr. Russ Lebovitz of Amprion. That was on February 1st. He does research on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's biomarkers. You can find that radio interview on our Fraser your communications website, Dr. Russ Leibovitz. Well, thanks very much. That was Mark Milstein, Dr. Mark Milstein. We've been talking about dementia and Alzheimer's, and I think those tips were terrific in terms. I know I've got to up my game, getting more sleep, more exercise, more quality foods and less processed foods. I want to thank you all for listening to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. Our firm, Frazier Communications, is a full service and integrated advertising and marketing firm with everything from digital and social media to traditional media and a lot of work with influencers. If you think we might be able to help you, please contact us at FraserCommunications.com. You can find this show on Spotify and other places you look for your podcasts. We welcome you to go there and listen to others of these. And if you're interested in more of the shows, they are also listed on FraserCommunications.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great week ahead.
Attention all authors. Page Publishing is looking for authors. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, Apple iTunes, and other outlets. They handle all aspects of the publishing process for you. Printing, cover art, publicity, copyright, and editing. Call 800-501-3689 now for your free author submission kit. That's 800-501-3689 for your free author submission kit. Again, 800-501-3689. AM 790. Talk Radio 790, KABC News, live and local. I am Tom Looney. Two Valentine's Day parties last night ended up with guns, blood, and death. One of those parties was at the Marriott in downtown Riverside. A guy was shot and killed by another guy, and police don't know who did it or why. Cops are also looking for three people that shot up a party last night in Arlita. As a result of that violence, one teenage boy is dead. Neighbors told KTLA that they're not used to violence on that street. Just hearing gunshots right next door is scary, especially for the kids. Witnesses say it was two males and a female that raided that party with bullets. Cops are looking for those three. President Trump will be in Los Angeles Tuesday. He'll be here to get an update on the preparations for the 2028 Olympics. I'm Tom Looney. We're on Newswatch 24-7 for you. AM 790, KABC. If you love them enough to barely sleep, then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I love this song. I love nachos. Loving everything? You might be buzzed. You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzz warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Fighting in the trenches. For you. Let's go! Catch the Ben Shapiro Show, afternoons 3 to 6, on AM 790 KABC. Spotlight is brought to you by AWJ Platinum PR. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. I'm Renee Frazier, the CEO and founder of Frazier Communications. We're the largest woman-owned and woman-led full-service communications firm in Southern California. And at Frazier, we work very hard to use communications to make the world a better place. That means changing behaviors like getting folks to see smoking or vaping and growing brands like Lexus and Hyundai, working very hard to positively impact society like the oral health campaign we're doing to reach families and children and a, a lead paint remediation program that we're highlighting. Various clients and some of our largest clients uh, in the in uh, Fraser Communications include Lexus, New Vision, Hyundai, Jonathan Lewis Furniture, East West Bank, Ontario International Airport, which is a great alternative to LAX for those of you coming into or leaving Southern California. And then statewide, we do work for First Five California, the Talk, Read, Sing campaign, which has over 85% awareness across the state, I'm pleased to say. And our L.A. countywide efforts for public health issues like vaping and getting folks to helping people to understand how important it is to try to quit smoking. You know, the average is about 11 times you have to quit before you finally get off cigarettes. But 
We also do uh, vaping messaging to teens and then work really hard to uh, help parents to understand all the resources that are available to them, including the oral health campaign I mentioned. That's enough about Frasier. We do a lot of campaigns using digital social media, as well as traditional media. And we really understand the importance of that mix to get results for our clients. But on the show, The Deciders, we feature CEOs and people who are leaders in their field, truly change agents in our mindset and in our communities. We ask people to share their insights and their stories. So I want to start today with a question. If you could find out whether or not you might develop Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, would you want to know? I think it's a troubling and difficult question to answer, but most of us would probably say yes. Well, my guest today is a man who believes early detection of neurogenerative diseases, brain diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. If you early, if you detect these early, you can help people make lifestyle changes. And eventually there may even be drugs that can postpone the onset of these very difficult diseases. My guest is Dr. Russ Leibovitz, CEO and co-founder of Amprion, a company that's trying to revolutionize early detection and looking for treatments for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. He's a scientist and a research physician who worked in a variety of academic settings before he co-founded Amprion. Welcome to The Deciders, Dr. Leibovitz. Well, thank you, Renee. I'm really glad to be here today. I'm delighted that you you are here. You know, we have handled a lot of uh, healthcare clients. We've handled Cedar Sinai, St. John's, uh, UCLA Health System, and I've worked with a lot of researchers. I commend you for taking that into the private sector. I, I think it's important for uh, you know, us to have uh, physicians who take that research uh, beyond the academic world, if you will, into the applied setting. Uh, tell me about your company and how, why you want to help people detect these very difficult uh, age-related diseases. How do you do that, and why are you doing this? Sure. Well, you've sort of nailed it that we're looking at biomarkers for neurodegenerative diseases that allow early diagnosis. And so what Amprion has developed really through academic research originally is a set of technologies that allow us to detect really critical biomarkers of these diseases, not only ones that tell you if the disease is there, but ones that probably are driving the progression of these diseases. So we can detect these really early and we can detect them very accurately because these biomarkers are present at very low concentrations. And maybe later we'll talk about exactly why they're so difficult or have been so difficult until Amprion's technology. But we, with our technology, you know, we're unleashing a new capability to look at these diseases from a completely different point of view and look at them early. Yeah, I want to, that's interesting. I want to make the distinction between a genetic uh, predisposition. Uh, I know there are, uh, you know, genetic uh, physicians you could go to who help to uh, diagnose, uh, for instance, the BRCA gene. They determine whether or not you have a genetic predisposition. But when you speak of biomarkers, those are actually chemicals in the blood. Is that right? In the body? Well, they can be anywhere, but generally we detect them primarily in the blood. And for neurologic diseases, we often detect them in the cerebrospinal fluid because it's considerably closer to the brain. And the biomarkers we detect are proteins. 
And what we have learned and others about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is that in most cases, 90% of these cases or more, these are not genetic diseases. There are genetic predispositions, but these are normal proteins that basically go rogue. And again, we can talk about what happens when they go rogue, but they're normal proteins that lose the normal regulatory path that they're on. They begin to take over cells, they make new copies of of themselves, and they spread from nerve cell to nerve cell along normal pathways, and suddenly a very rare event uh, that makes one of these proteins go rogue, and that's really the way we talk about it, Uh, they turn to the dark side, Mm -hmm. and when they do that, they basically cause disease. And in a second, maybe we can talk a little bit about what we mean by going rogue. We'll talk about that in a second. I I want to try to understand, when do you recommend people do the kind of testing that you're talking about? Well, to, you know, our test is still, um, while it's being commercialized, it's still a year or so away from uh, first being offered to the public. So today, no one can call up and have it, but we do a lot of research and testing. And, you know, our ultimate goal here is to first show, and we've done this, uh, certainly in the academic literature, Mm -hmm. we've shown that we can detect the disease at very, very high accuracy in patients who already have the disease, in patients who are at the earliest stages of disease, and in some cases in patients who don't know they have the disease. So, you know, we will do a study of known and unknown who are matched for age and race and gender. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we found that we find people who are positive and clinically they are negative. And in almost every case, we find that four or five years later, those people came down with the disease. Ah, So now Mm -hmm. we believe we can probably go back decades or more. Wow. That's very good to know that you're doing this that way. I, let me ask, where are you in the process of approval from the FDA? You mentioned a year uh, before you'd be able to access it. I'm just curious, where are you in the process yeah. with the FDA? Yeah, so one, we're an in vitro diagnostic test. So there are several ways to be able to offer an in vitro diagnostic test done in a single laboratory to the public. Uh, all of it is done under the auspices of the FDA, but we'll probably first do this as something what's known as a CLIA lab, and that just follows under a federal guideline to have an independent lab that does a test that's validated. But with respect to the FDA, you know, we certainly work very closely with them. In May of this year, in 2019, we were granted breakthrough device designation by the FDA. And that's something that's given rarely for devices, or in this case, our device is an in vitro diagnostic test that has unusual potential in an area that has giant unmet needs. So we are, you know, we work closely with the FDA, but we think that we are a approximately 12 to 18 months away from our first test, which really will be for a protein involved in both Parkinson's and certain dementias called alpha-synuclein. Got it. So dementias, certain dementias, uh, conditions, and then Parkinson's. And just to give people the kind of the broad scope, and then we'll go into detail about these rogue cells that we were talking about, um, what kind of lifestyle changes and choices 
do you have an envisioned that would help people if they determine that they have this predisposition with these biomarkers? Yeah, well, you know, there's plenty of people doing research on this. And so we benefit from all of their work. And it's pretty clear now over the last two to three years that people who even who have early clinical stages of both Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and related neurodegenerative diseases, fortunately benefit from all the things that are good for heart disease and mm. for other things. So uh, diet, exercise, uh, you know, yoga, things that promote you know, internal and external health seem to work here as well. And that's great. It would be terrible if the thing that worked best for these diseases was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So it's, <laughs> right. it's great that we're very much aligned with things that make you healthy otherwise. Uh, and so th- th- that data is good. And maybe when you're in, ready in a few minutes, we could talk about even, you know, where we believe the pharmaceutical industry is heading with drugs that might be useful for treating people with early diagnosis. Yeah, I like that idea. But let, let's talk about this rogue phenomena that you talked about yeah. first, because uh, you said an event that can go happen to you that makes things go rogue. Now, describe yeah. what you mean. Let's talk about so, that. So there are certain proteins in the body and a number of these in the brain that have a perfectly normal function and that They get made in a certain place. They get chaperoned to a place where they carry out their function. And then they, when they get replaced, uh, they get older and they get replaced with a new copy of the protein. They get chaperoned to be destroyed and recycled. Mm -hmm. And it's a very orderly process. But certain proteins in the brain very, very rarely go rogue. And what I mean by that is they take on new properties. They basically take on superpowers. They Mm. turn to the dark side. Mm. And there are three superpowers that these rogue proteins take on that really determine how they produce these diseases. The first is, instead of just having a normal function, when they go rogue and turn to the dark side, they become toxic. They can damage and Mm. kill cells, whereas Mm -hmm. the normal form of the protein only helps cells or is neutral. The second superpower that these take on when they go rogue is they take on the ability to seek out and coerce their brethren, the normal form of the protein in the cell Mm. that's normally in this orderly process. They find them and they make them go rogue. They trigger it with others. I got it. Okay. You know, you start with one and suddenly you have two, four, and suddenly the whole cell that this certain protein is taken over and they've all gone rogue and they're Mm. now toxic. And the third superpower that may be the most important is they now get the ability in this rogue form to cross barriers between connected cells. So they move from one nerve cell to other connected nerve cells along established pathways. So a very, very rare event of one of these proteins going rogue over time leads to cells being filled with it and many cells and eventually whole regions of the brain being filled with these rogue proteins and those cells eventually get sick and die and that is the progressive nature of these neurodegenerative diseases. Degenerative diseases makes sense. Now is there any kind of um uh, you, you mentioned that these uh, there's a normal order with the proteins in the body and in the brain. Uh, this notion of uh, of being utilized and then recycled and removed, uh, chaperoned, as you said. 
there anything that would trigger this uh, these three superpowers? Is it uh, like stress or uh, uh, some kind of an incident in a person's life or the things that you see as indicators that, OK, this is why they started to go rogue? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what we know is mostly epidemiologically, because mm. as you'll hear, these are processes that take many, many years once they start. But what we know from just observing people in general is that there are several different things that can happen to cause these diseases to start. One of the ones that's most obvious is people who have a lot of head banging and head injuries yeah. when they're young right. have a much greatly increased probability of these diseases when they get older. And that suggests something happens when you're in your teens or 20s and 30s. But if the disease hits you in your 70s, it takes 30 or 40 years for, you know, this this event that right. once initiated and in involving these rogue proteins to take over enough cells. We read about um, that for related to uh, concussions and football players, right? Exactly. Active but sports where players, people, yes. Boxers, mm -hmm. but, you know, people who just have head contact. It doesn't all have to be concussions, just mm -hmm. minor head contact. That's certainly one way. There's a lot of data also that suggests that people have certain infections in the brain when they're young, particularly involving herpes viruses, mm -hmm. tend to have a much higher incidence of Alzheimer's and other dementias. And then there's also evidence that somehow our microbiome, the bacteria in our gut, that certain people at certain times when they're younger may have combinations of bacteria in their gut that increase their incidence of getting Parkinson's disease. Wow. And the, yeah, the data is really right. interesting. It, it's basically that if you just look at random, that people, and you look at a lot of patients, you find that people who had their appendix removed when they were relatively young, let's say before they were 20, have a much lower incidence of Parkinson's than people who did not. Hmm. Now, it could be random, but there's a lot of people in the study and so you start to say, oh, well, something going on in the gut might be related. And then a second piece of data there for Parkinson's is that for whatever reason, rarely there's a nerve that connects from the gut to the brain. Mm -hmm. And there are certain people and certain problems that they have to have that nerve cut. Hmm. And people who have that nerve cut at relatively early ages also have a much lower incidence of Parkinson's, suggesting hmm. that at least some people with Parkinson's, it may start in the gut, move along those nerves, and then eventually get to the brain. So wow. I, I think the answer is there's lots hmm. of things that can cause, that can trigger this rogue protein to start in the brain. But once it does, it's self-perpetuating. You know, I, I think most people wouldn't think about the gut, you know, as a, as a starting place. That's really interesting for Parkinson's and uh, <laughs> these early incidents. What about the pharmaceutical companies? What are they doing? Because I know this is a, obviously a high incidence of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's as we see the aging of the population. So a big opportunity oh, for them. It's it's a giant opportunity and it represents maybe, you know, sort of our biggest problem as we're starting to, you know, we've made a lot of progress with infectious disease that killed people at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, then we made it in the second half of the 20th century, a lot of progress with heart disease. Uh, we're making great progress with cancer. So 
you know, the next frontier is going to be these neurodegenerative diseases. They're the only major diseases where the prevalence and the incidence is growing. So there's a lot of interest, but these have turned out to be very, very difficult diseases to treat. Uh, They're complex. And part of the problem is, as we've been alluding to in this discussion, you know, it may be that by the time you have symptoms, that may just be because you've destroyed so many nerve cells that it's hard to to make someone better. Or or it's manifesting itself more seriously. I think what you're suggesting is this takes years, as you said, so you may not notice the symptoms at some point, right? By the time you do, there's a very serious buildup of these proteins, evidently. Yes, the the brain is very plastic, meaning Mm -hmm. that it it can change. And if there's injury, it can reform connections so you don't notice it. So by the time you start to notice that you're having trouble moving or trouble thinking, that means you've been going through a very long process where the brain has been compensating for cells being lost for many years but you suddenly hit that point where there's no more compensation that works. And there's probably a very significant amount of damage at that point. So our goal should be as much as possible to hit these diseases early. And we can talk about that when you're ready, because there's really a a good logic for doing that. Let let me ask you a couple of questions. We we read about plaque in the brain or this white substance, and particularly with dementia and Alzheimer's. Is this a manifestation of these uh, these proteins building up in the process you mentioned of their superpowers? Absolutely. So plaque uh, was the first to be recognized of these rogue proteins. And plaque is almost solely made up of a rogue protein called uh, A-beta amyloid. Hmm. And A-beta is a normal protein made in the brain, but that it can misfold into this rogue form. And when it does, everything I described before, it spreads, it damages cells, it triggers actually the misfolding of other proteins that help kill cells. And ultimately, when you have lots and lots and lots of this rogue a beta amyloid floating around, it just coalesces and forms these very, very large aggregates, which we know of as plaque and which we see under the microscope at mm-hmm. very late stage in the disease. Well, what what could we be doing earlier then? What would you recommend? I mean, we talked about similar to heart disease, a healthy diet, yoga, exercise, not smoking. I suspect obesity is not a good thing as well, right? Staying fit. So all of these things clearly help, Um, but nevertheless, you know, the numbers are too great. There are certainly people who are very fit and take care of themselves who still come down with these diseases. It's just part of biology. And so ultimately, I think what we can do is, um, you know, stay as healthy as possible, but At a certain point, we will have tools, and I hope that a significant number of these tools will be produced by Amprion, where we can screen for the three major rogue proteins that cause Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and they're uh, A-beta amyloid, uh, mainly in what we know as Alzheimer's. It leads to dementia, a protein called tau, 
which is also associated with Alzheimer's, but can be go rogue by itself without a beta and causes a number of both motor and cognitive dementia problems. And then alpha-synuclein, which is most closely linked with Parkinson's, but probably is found in 40% of dementia cases. So all of these proteins probably start to go rogue and misfold and proliferate in, you know, for people who get it in their 70s, probably in their 30s. Well, so if we knew, right, then early. the question is, what would we do? What would we do about it if you knew it earlier? What would be the action? Obviously, no head injuries, but beyond that, what could sure. people do to mitigate or slow down the process? Well, what's interesting is, you know, for the last 20 years, drug companies have been developing drugs against a beta amyloid for Alzheimer's. And unfortunately, none of them have worked. But the problem is not that they don't hit the misfolded a beta amyloid, but they just can't possibly hit it hard enough to reverse the changes when you already have the disease. So the question is whether or not if we had an early diagnosis, it may be that a drug that is not adequate to treat a disease once you have clinical symptoms is way more than adequate to treat that disease before you have symptoms. So earlier, and, hitting it yeah. earlier, that's why being screened for those proteins on a regular basis might yeah. be a part of a good, healthy living, right? So it's uh, 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 pr proactive. Yeah. So if you think about it, if what we're really moving towards now is there are drugs out there that are being tested now or have been tested that you can show slow down the rate of progression of the disease, but don't necessarily reverse it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if, you know, you have someone in your family or you or me and we're, you know, in our 70s and suddenly we're losing these facilities Someone saying, all right, I'm going to give you a drug. It's going to cost 100000 a year, and you're never going to get better, but you're going to get worse more slowly. Right. It, it's That's not so helpful. No, no. Although my mother had dementia, and she had a drug like that to slow down the, process, the progress yeah, when she was in her late had, 70s. Yeah, similar experiences. But if you're 40 or 50 mm. and you have no symptoms, actually you're at such an early stage of the disease that slowing it down by 5 or 10% is likely to push that disease way past 100 when mm. you would get it. It would be worth so, it. It definitely would the, be worth it then, right? Exactly. So the same drug that's out there today that isn't working for someone with full-blown disease might be extraordinarily effective. So we may already have these tools. So we encourage and we work with a number of drug companies and, you know, we believe that they're developing tools that certainly are going to work early. And to do that, they're partnering with us so we can get the regulatory approval and the data to be able to look at people earlier and earlier and figure out exactly when the disease begins. And then we want to hit it early enough so that the drugs that are out there just push us again. We just want to get this disease when we're 130 for now. Make, uh, make, makes a lot of sense, uh, Dr. Leibovitz. This has been really helpful and very encouraging. You know, we call the show The Deciders, so I always last, ask people at the last part of the show to tell us about a tough decision they've had to make. Can you share one with us? Sure. Um, you know, I, I feel like in what I do, there are tough decisions every day, and I want to keep it relevant to you know, what I do. And it's, 
you know, we have to make decisions in our business that, you know, what to, what to study and what not to study. Uh, you know, we have to go, we have to get um, funding for it. So there's always compromises that have to be made if you have a vision and you want to bring something through. So, you know, I'd say that at Amprion, there were several years when, you know, it was very tough to get funding and we really had to shut things down almost and just keep them at a very minimal level, even though we knew we were sitting on something very important and people weren't so convinced that these misfolded rogue proteins were so important in these diseases. So I understand that kind of decision. Very difficult, but it may have worked out in the sense that the timing may be even better for Amprion, right? Oh, I think in the long run, being patient and just, you know, keeping things slow, even though we knew that we were sitting on something very important, you sometimes just have to wait for the world to come around to be aligned with you. That's right. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you to the listeners for spending time with us on The Deciders with these insights and these interesting facts about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. You can hear our podcasts on our website, thedeciders.com, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You'll be back next week, I hope, to hear us on The Deciders with Renee Frazier. This is Renee Frazier of Frazier Communications. To learn more about our work with digital social media and how we might help your business, visit us at FraserCommunications.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great week ahead.